We've been here before. A pharmaceutical company, this time Vertex, develops a new drug, or Cambi, that significantly improves the quality of life for patients, this time cystic fibrosis. But it comes with a crazy price tag. The number crunchers say it's too expensive, and then the patients take to the airwaves and plead their case. By refusing me this drug, the government is killing me. How is that moral? But is it immoral to cave into the demands of Big Pharma? In studio, Gina Menzies is a lecturer in medical ethics. Senator James Riley is a GP and former Minister for Health and Children. Michael Barry is clinical director at the National Centre for Pharma Economics. And Paul Cullen is the health correspondent with the Irish Times. Michael Barry, will you tell us a little bit about this drug and what decisions you and the, the quango you represent have made about it? Yes, our Cambi is a combination product which includes Lumacafter and Ivacafter and it works by, if you like, correcting the underlying cause of cystic fibrosis for people with a certain mutation, the 508 mutation, which happens to include about 505 patients in this country. It works to some extent in the sense that it's not a cure and I think we need to be clear about that. We need longer-term data to ensure that it actually changes the course of the disease. But what we know at this point in time, it improves the breathing test, the so-called FEV1, by about 2 or 3%. It reduces hospitalizations, which is a good thing. It reduces the requirement for intravenous antibiotics. So, for example, if you treat 100 patients for, say, a year, 48 weeks, you'll reduce the number of pulmonary exacerbations by 28 and you'll reduce the requirement for intravenous antibiotics in 34 cases. So that's they're the benefits of it. But as you say, it comes at a really high price. It's €159,000 per patient per year. And if you look at it in terms of budget impact over four years, we estimated it, five years, we estimated it at just under €400 million Euro, or half of a children's hospital. And, and that's the challenge here. Uh, and sorry, us. when you're assessing the price, do you take into account the savings that will be made by the patients not having to go into hospital and not getting those other procedures? Yes, that's a very important point. I think we, if we look at the process, the industry, in this case Vertex, is invited to submit a dossier and include all the costs and all the benefits. So, of course, if you're Vertex, you will include all those cost offsets. That makes total sense because it makes your drug look better. And, and that's right, and I have no problem with that. But even when you do that, we have a threshold level of to indicate value for money in this country at about €45,000 per quality-adjusted life year. When you look at this drug, it's uh, well above €600,000 per quality-adjusted life year. And that's mainly down to the exorbitant price of the medication, even when you take into account all the costs and all the outcomes. Now, and just tell me a little bit about the process of drug approval and how our system compares, say, to other European countries. Do they engage in similar exercises? Yeah, there's heterogeneity across Europe, as as you'd expect. But some countries are fairly similar, ourselves and Scotland, England, uh, Holland, Sweden, where we tend to use cost-effectiveness analysis. So what happens in this country is when a company submits its price to the HSE, simultaneously they submit a document to us called a rapid review document, where we have a look-see over a four-week period and say, this needs to be further evaluated or not. Now, in 50% of cases, I'm delighted to say, we say no, no further evaluation is needed. We should reimburse the drug. However, if you have a high cost drug or a a big budget impact drug, then it does make sense to look at it in more detail. Because, you know, we're very cognizant that there are other disease areas like cancer, 
like heart failure. And currently we're looking at five other drugs at the moment and they come with a price tag of 400 million euro over five years. And it's the opportunity cost. That's why we do this. Because we know that if we allocate a lot of money in one area, it's not going to be available for another area. And so I guess I always say that we like to advocate for everyone. Mm. Gina Menzies, Michael mentioned a phrase there, quality adjusted life year. Is that it? What does that mean? Well, it would take a while to unravel it totally. But what it means is the value of the drug for one year of, if you like, additional life to the patient. So it's a kind of it's an algorithm that obviously Michael uses, which is fairly common in the Western world. And Michael, actually, he might have there mentioned the NICE Institute in the UK, you know, the National Institute for like Clinical Excellence. And they've done exactly a similar analysis of Orkambi. And they've come to the same conclusion at the moment. And that's, I think, a caveat to put in, that at the moment they're saying this cost is too high. I think the debate and the discussion perhaps needs to be between countries, government, ministers for health and the pharma companies. You know, unfortunately, the patients are in the middle of this and you're absolutely right. As medical people, you know, your job is to advocate always for your patient, almost without anything else. But, you know, you're also, I often tell students, you're also in the future going to be a gatekeeper of resources. And it's very easy to advocate. It's very easy to be emotional. And if I had, you know, a relative suffering from something, would I be an advocate? I absolutely would. But I don't have to be the gatekeeper, you know, at the same time. And I think it's interesting that in fairness to the minister, I think he's handled it, you know, well. He said that he's linked up with, I think, the UK, with Scotland, Canada and Australia, all who have at the moment said no, but his view is that if they could get together, maybe sort of they could produce a a cumulative outcome. I think my other kind of really strong point would be that I think there's a huge lack of transparency. You know, I have a graph here which shows the escalation over the number of years. And I would accept it takes 10 to 12 years to produce a new drug. It is hugely risky, costly and lengthy. And there's a huge loss as well because there's a whole lot of casualties. Pfizer in recent years spent, I think, 800 million on a new drug and then then they abandoned it because it didn't work. So I would accept you have to write that into it. But I don't think we have the transparency in how these drugs are produced. James Riley. Now, one curious thing about our system for drug approval in this country is that Michael's group, the Pharma Economic Group, can make a decision. But the Minister for Health then has the power to overrule them. Now, I've been thinking about that. And on the one hand, I think I like the fact that a human can get involved, you know, and listen to patients. And it's not just an actuarial exercise. Michael feels very human too. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not an actuarial exercise. On the other hand, it makes politicians extremely vulnerable to lobbying and you know I was listening to live dine during the week and patients were ringing in and it is very emotional and who can look a patient in the eye and say no you can't have this so what's your view on the process and on the right of the minister to intervene well there's another step involved before the minister gets involved and that's the HSE board itself makes a decision and a determination and then it's open to the minister following that again to make a decision. It's a, it's, it's a, I think it's a dangerous place to be because you're going to be accused of acting, playing God, basically, and you're going to be making decisions around drugs that can be the difference between, you know, longevity and a very short life in, in certain instances. One of the things I'd like to speak to, though, is the fact that, and Michael has mentioned this before in other areas, and we talked about it years ago when I was minister as well, 
And that's the fact that the drug companies, A, as Gina said, they're not as transparent as they might be uh, in terms of the information and the true cost of developing a drug, factoring in all the issues that we've already spoken of. But equally, there's no sense of cost sharing, risk sharing here. So Michael has made the point before about, and I fully concur with this, that, you know, one of the things we could do here is that for those whom it works, we'll pay that price. But for those for whom it doesn't work, well, let the drug company carry the cost and the risk of that. And that would make it far more affordable, particularly in an instance like this where you don't have 100% effectiveness. It's only around 25%, I think, of people who would benefit. Now, who knows who those 25% are? And, you know... So know how would that work exactly? So in other words... We'd say, fine, 150,000. Now, I mean, I'm speaking in a personal capacity. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. suggesting that that would be the price. But, you know, for those after a year, six months, a year, we do the tests. We see if there's an improvement in objective function, like the FEV1 that Michael referred to and there's other respiratory spirometry tests that can be done. And in those that meet the criteria, fine, we pay. And in those for whom it has not made any difference, we don't. And I can think of lots of drugs around this area where people were, you know, well, if you don't give it, you'll never know. And I think particularly of Alzheimer's mm. and the use of many very expensive agents. And sure, at least, doctor, I was told by many uh, uh, pharmaceutical sales rep, it, it improves their behaviour. Well, there were an awful lot of cheaper medications out there that would be very effective at helping the disturbed behaviour. But these drugs have been sold on the premise that they were going to keep your memory and your well-being for longer than otherwise would be the case. And how do you judge? And you have to have objective judgments in that. Can I just finish by saying this too, and it's something that's been with me for many, many a year, long before I became involved in politics. I spoke to a gentleman and out of respect for him. He's passed on. I won't mention his name, but a well-known doctor. And he was asked to speak at an international drug company, a very large drug company, meeting that went on for a number of days and he spoke early on in the meeting and I guess they kind of forgot he was there. And the CEO of the company, I think on the second day, was being asked about a particular drug and I won't mention it in fairness. Will it work? And he said, well, the way it is, guys, by the time they know whether it works or not, we'll have made our money. Mm. Now, that's a true story. Mm. So I'm not saying that's the case with this specific company, but I am saying that they seem to be looking for super profits on this. And, you know, you don't want to be personalising things, but there were stories last year of considerable bonuses running into the millions paid to people. And I can say factually that the CEO got $28 million last year. So, I mean, you know, what I love to see in this situation is, and I know that the department and the minister have been in touch with Cystic Fibrosis Ireland, who are very upset about the way this story broke. But, I, I mean, I've seen this in the past and with another consultant who is excellent in negotiating with another drug company around hematological products in Michael's Hospital. And he had the patient groups with him on the same side of the table, eyeballing the pharmaceutical companies. Right. And they saved several million over a period of five or six years in, in, in product now, cost I, to the benefit of patients. I'll come to Paul Conan in a second, but I just want to go back on, on the first question that I asked you, which is about the minister interfering. So there was a drug last year called Kaleidico, also made by Vertex, also for cystic fibrosis, and they called that a game changer and it cost 234000 per patient per year. Now, I think, were you minister at the time? So did you overrule... 
the HSC on that one. I just can't recall. In the end, yeah, I made a decision. Right. But the price of it actually came down to 80,000. Oh, really? Plus, the fact here was that it was for a specific genotype and it worked for those people in, in an absolute fashion. This drug only works in a percentage of those with a particular mutation. This other drug actually worked if you had that mutation, you were going to benefit. So was part of your approval process the fact that you managed to get the price down to 80000 Was that a factor in it or did you approve it before the price oh, came no, down? Oh, no, no, no. It was at that. We, by yeah. the time we, was, when we realised we couldn't get it down any further, yeah. we had to make a decision. Michael had done his work, made the recommendation. The HSE board had looked at it as well. And in the end, we came to a, a decision based on the fact that, as Michael has already pointed out, many of the the savings to be made in terms of people not having to go to hospital on a regular basis, plus the huge improvement in the so quality of life. So are you happy that you made that decision, you know, based on, we'll say, kind of responsible public spending plus efficacy and not because you were under this kind of emotional pressure from patients? I believe that it was the right decision to make and I still believe that Mm. Uh, and I believe that it's improved the lives of many, many patients. And you see, I think it's most unfortunate that we find ourselves with Vertex in the situation we're in. They've developed this wonder drug. They say it's a wonder drug and it is for some people. And yet we're now in a very adversarial sort of situation with them because they seek to have a price that's frankly just not feasible. I mean, as Michael said, you know, in a five-year period, that's half the price of the paediatric hospital. Like, if, if we go to pay for this at this price, then what other things in our health budget are going to suffer? And that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. So, Paul Cullen, I, I was listening to Lifeline, you know, and, and it's very hard when there is a patient saying, you're putting a price on my life. That cannot be moral. Is it moral to put a price on someone's life? It's probably not a fair question. Mm. Um, you know, opportunity cost is part of operating a health system, really. If you if you spend a chunk of money on this, it's not available for that. Now, this isn't a competition like we had between, you know, the dodo died out because perhaps because of its looks, you know, but yet, you know, we keep panda bears because we, we think they're cute. You know, we can't we can't reduce it to that sort of situation. I think there's an aspect of this which is a kind of a culture clash between European public health systems and American companies who are the epitome of American free market capitalism. And we see more of that under Donald Trump. And although we talk about big pharma, these companies that we're talking about now are actually a very interesting subsection of of big pharma. They haven't been around for hundreds of years and, you know, originated from some Swiss chemists by the Rhine mixing chemicals or some American lab scientists trying LSD 80 years ago, as many of the, the giants have done this. These are small outliers. This company, Vertex, has two products. That's all. It's existed for 28 years. It's only made a profit in one. Mm. So it's a big gamble company. And also, what's happened is really interesting as well. We're not hearing about new drugs for the flu or for malaria, are we? We're hearing about, you know, it went. the market went a different way. I think, and Michael would probably clarify this, but I think because of tax breaks in the States, companies who started researching new drugs for so-called orphan diseases or orphan drugs, diseases that affect very small numbers of people. Mm. Now, CF is big in Ireland, but it's not so big in other countries. So they have gone after that. And fair play to them. They have come up with game changers or alleged game changers, which mean an awful lot to a very small number of people. 
And so the stakes are very high. And they also have the market to themselves because the traditional big pharma companies are not there. And they're looking on with some envy because when you have a, a monopoly on the market, then you can seek to charge what you wish. And I think what's happened, we have seen in, in the case of Savaldi, I think, in hep C area, another product which is really good, really, really good in cure hep C, you know, but it was very, very expensive. But there's competition has come into that and the market and the prices have gone down. So with time, this problem will resolve itself. The issue is, too, is how fast we put new drugs on the market. Clearly, there's a clamour for them. And let's be clear, if my child was diagnosed tomorrow with a particular form of CF or something, I would want this drug. If I was a treating physician, I would probably want it for my patients as well. So I can talk in the abstract, but, you know, I would, as a parent, then if I was faced in that situation, I would want the drug. And if it didn't work, I'd just move on and look for the next one that was coming. You know, mm. I'm not interested in seeing whether it might work or so not. So just go back to that business model of companies like Vertex, where they're not going for the flu, you know, or, or, yes. or the big drug. Yeah. Are you saying that that's a particular business strategy, that if they go into a relatively obscure illness, find something for that, then they'll be able to charge what they want? So that's that's the plan. It seems to me that this is the way this is modelled because, and you see huge variations in this company's uh, stock market price. I think a million was yeah. a billion was knocked, knocked off it just there recently because the investors are high-risk investors who are very sensitised to you know, this approval or that approval. And there's a knock-on effect across countries, of course. Uh, If the Brits do it, we'll probably do it. Whereas if they were inventing something for the flu, the traditional pharma industry doesn't seem to have as much incentive to go after that because the returns are much smaller, which is a pity, really, because it obviously affects a large number of people. Yeah, that's really interesting perspective on it. Michael Barry, I think there are about 1,100 patients just in Europe who have the exact gene that this drug or can be that we're hearing about this week, that it can affect them. Like, what's your take on the business models of the pharmaceutical companies? I mean, they do put billions into research. Vertex has never made a profit yet. This is what they're gambling everything on. Do you think they make too many profits? I would be rather critical, I have to say, of Vertex. I think it's time that they put patients first and they put profits and shareholders second. Right, but they might say they are putting patient first by spending 30 years investing in this. And actually, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in America has itself invested in Vertex. $120 million they've put in to date and they've agreed to put up another $75 million. So they raise this money from people who say our hope is research and in finding a wonder drug. So They did and maybe they're not uh, too pleased about the way things are going. There is no point in producing an innovation, a so-called innovation, Mm. if you can't afford it. Uh, my definition of an innovation is a newer old drug that produces real health outcomes at a price we can afford. And it's the, it's the third point that, that we see here. But I think there's a, a general point, and I've been talking about this for some time. Over the last five years or so, we're seeing a totally different trend in medicines. We're seeing an awful lot of very high cost biologic medicines coming into the market. And where we used to think that statin therapy was expensive at 400 euro a year, we're seeing drugs now that are 400,000 euro per patient per year. Just to give you an idea of this, we completed 19 assessments by October of this year. The asking price for the 19 assessments was 1 billion euro. That tells you where we are right now. That's half of the current drug but budget. But is it like technology that when the iPhone comes out first, it's crazy and only a few people can afford it. But then as it moves on, the price does come down. They know what they're doing. 
you know, more people are able to take up the drug. So the early adopters just have to suck it and see, really, don't they? Yeah, I mean, Paul was alluding to that and he's absolutely right that as time goes on, the price of these medicines will come down. But, you know, you have a patent life of about 10 years. So uh, if you're looking at these medications and they have quite a number of years, particularly when they're very high cost medicines, then you are paying the price. And as Paul was saying uh, that, you know, it's the opportunity cost. You could have put that money elsewhere. And that's always the dilemma for us. Where do we get the best uh, and, health outcome? And James Riley, were you in that position when you were minister that you're divvying up the budget, or maybe it was more the HSE had to do it, but say Terence Cosgrove, who writes about this, he wrote about it last year, and he was saying, so Caldico got approval, and round about the same time, and no one's saying it was a direct result of it, but round about the same time, the operations for gastric bypasses were cancelled. And there were 180 people on a waiting list for that. And Dr. Donal O'Shea, who's the leading expert on that, said that that was a death sentence for his patients. And all those operations together would have cost two and a half million euros. You know, so you buy a drug, the operations get cancelled for somebody else. Were you conscious of the operational consequences of making one decision over another when you were minister. I was, and there was lots of things we would have loved to have done that we couldn't do. There were, you know, there was the whole issue of transplants, which we eventually got money to do. But this is always the the problem. And, you know, I agree with everything Paul said, except for one thing, that the problem isn't going to go away because it's just going to be another drug and another mm. drug and another drug. So this drug will, yes, of course, over time become more affordable. I wanted to talk, I mean, I know what you've asked me a question there. And I mean, that is the problem all the time. You've got a fixed budget. You're very limited. We were in the time of a financial crisis. We had our budget cut, cut, cut in health. There's two billion plus more in health now than when I was there. But this drug decision that I made, because it was proven to work in the genotype in virtually 100%. Right. And I think that's still the experience, um, you know, is a very different to this here. But the, the argument remains the same. If we're going to spend money over here, where is it going to come from? And, you know, that was always the argument with our drugs budget, that the existing drugs that had been around for a long time had to drop in price. And, you know, the natural competition of generics coming in achieved that to a certain extent. There was another accusation made, I don't know if it had validity, that the Irish government was afraid to negotiate aggressively with the drug companies because we were keeping an eye on the FDI and the jobs and all of that. Is that really a factor? Look, that will always be said, you know, that a lot of this is about sentiment. I mean, everybody thinks, you know, investment is actually about hard facts and figures. A lot of it is about sentiment as well. So we have 20,000 people employed directly by the farm industry in this country and they're very good jobs, well-paid jobs. And there's another 100,000 jobs related to that between, you know, suppliers and various other aspects of the chain. So, of course, government is mindful of that. Was it ever intimated to you that that might be an issue? from the pharmaceutical side. Like now just, I imagine it wouldn't be said directly. But no, no, it was never said directly. Yeah, but, but it was in the ether for sure. And there's no point in pretending that it wasn't. Mm. But notwithstanding that, yeah, I mean, let's say we all know you can go to Portugal or you can go to Spain, you can buy five months medicines for the price of one month here. So, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done in the area of the cost of medication in this country. But there, I believe there is a solution to this. Now, I don't mean this particular problem today, but the overall problem. And it's something that we did when when I was minister and we were in Europe. We got an EU directive through on vaccinations. 
that countries could come together to purchase vaccines. Yeah, that seems obvious, right? doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And so a natural extension of that would be when it comes to new medications like this. I mean, everybody wants the drug company to get the return on their investment. But as Michael said, we have to put patients first. I want, as a doctor, my patients with cystic fibrosis who would benefit from this to be able to have it. And I fully admit, like anybody else in this room, if my child had cystic fibrosis, I'd want my child so to who's get the benefit So ag- who's against that? Why hasn't that happened to date, that the countries can get together on Be- it? Well, I'd say now, without saying too much <laughs> across the airways, <laughs> oh, say there's, something. there's a <laughs> lot of vested interests with very powerful lobby groups, you know. Mm. And let's, let's, I, I, would, I would know one very well, as you know, where they had one company had 167 lobbyists for 750 MEPs in Brussels. What? So when you're talking big money and big pharma, they understand marketing, they understand how yeah. to pressurise, they understand all those things. Was that tobacco, was yes, it? Yes, yeah. And I mean, it's been said to me since that if we were to go at it again today, we'd probably have great difficulty getting it through. But you did get it through. That was a through. success, actually, yes. wasn't it? But I mean, from the point of view of this, I think this is where we need to go. And I think even my saying that here today, rattling the cage, I hope will have maybe make pharmaceutical companies pick up their ears and think, well, now maybe we better be a bit more reasonable. Ireland, because of our pharma industry, has often been the place that's used as one of the pricing seven areas to dictate world price. Oh. And that is why we have such a battle on our hands. So, I mean, I think in this case... I, so they actually use the fact oh yeah. that we're in a weaker position to then leverage that with the, all their Abs- other negotiations. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So they'll pick places like, they won't be picking Spain and Portugal, they'll be picking Ireland and America and wherever else they can get a high price. And then they'll say, here's a basket of seven, we'll give you the average and that's our average world price. Now, Gina Menzies, one thing that the pharmaceutical companies, I imagine, are very happy about is when there are patients ringing Liveline and saying, the drug company gave me access to this drug for free for the last year. It has remarkably improved my life and I haven't been in hospital. I only have three more months supply. That will run out. They're not going to give me any more. After that, it's up to the government. And are they going to do this to me? Is it ethical for the companies to give it to the patients for free like that? Well, I think, I think that's a big open question. I think it does go back to the whole marketing. I think it is part, to be honest, I'm a little bit sceptical. I think it's part of a marketing strategy. I had a student last year who did a huge amount of research on paediatric oncology. And what she was looking at was, you know, parents of children. And I mean, it's the most gut-wrenching thing in the world. If your child has gone through every treatment, every drug that's available... And, you know, the prognosis is negative. And then they go online and they find out all kinds of things. You know, Google has become a major concern, if you like, I think in the, in the medical mm-hmm. world anyway. And they find all kinds of possibilities in other countries. And then, you know, what parents often do in desperation is they go online, they sort of set up charities and funding. And, you know, this student was able to produce cases, you know, which were, again, gut-wrenching because, you know, a child was taken from one country to another, went through endless I would say, in inverted commas, torture, because that was what the parents, they hoped always, hope is, she was talking about kind of negative hope, and then the child died in the most horrific circumstances. So I think there is a big ethical issue about, you know, how emotions are used by marketing companies and who would, you know, who wouldn't be sort of, you know, take on board when a parent is pleading that this may save my child's life. How could you say, you know, you're not entitled to do that? I think as Paul and everybody has said, you know, if it was my child, I mean, I had a brother who died of motor neuron 
And I mean, had he looked for something, would I have fought for it? By God, you know, I would have. He was far too sensible. He realised that that all these sort of mechanical other supports weren't going to work. However, there is a patient who's been in the public media, and I'm not sure what the cost is. It's either a quarter of a half a million a year to keep that patient alive. And I remember talking to Orla Hardiman, who's kind of a world expert in the area, and she said, she said, I have the problem now of the uh, advocate and the gatekeeper because all my patients now want this. And she said, the first thing is it's absolutely unsuitable for the vast majority of them. And she said, how can I be an advocate and also be in charge of the resources? She said, it is my ongoing you know, ethical battle. How is that handled in other countries? Or well, is that a common problem? I, I think how it's handled in most countries is, let, well, I suppose the one that I'd be most familiar with would be the NHS in the UK. Mm. And they, well, they have criteria for whatever they're doing. For example, just say a, a more simple one, say um, assisted reproduction. So on the uh, the state, the NHS will pay for a patient who's eligible for that and they will have three cycles of assisted reproduction. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, if you like, they're, they're on their own. So they have very clear criteria and it's all monitored and it's reviewed. So I think that's the only way to go, that the criteria is there and is very public and everybody understands it. But, you know, I think it's very hard to get away from, you know, people using patients emotively. And I think there is an ethical, a big ethical question there. Paul, what's your view on that? Giving the patients the drug for free, is that a way of proving its efficacy? You know, and is quite legitimate. I mean, first of all, you have to acknowledge that the patients want it. You have to accept that uh, we're talking about adults. um, They want it and uh, it's hard to to reject a request by them for that. I mean, we do pride ourselves, and I know a lot of clinicians in Ireland pride themselves on this country's um, early access to pioneering We're drugs. quite good. We're better than Britain, for example. Yeah. I, I think this whole issue is much less prominent in public debate than it is in Ireland, in a, in a lot of other countries. They're much more cut and dried about it. They have criteria and they've built, built up over years. Now, we do have the same NICE type system yeah. that they have in Britain through Michael. Yeah. But perhaps because of our small size, because of our families, sort of, uh, what, everybody knows everyone. And sort what of thing. about We're this culturally issue different, of the minister having the power to intervene? You know? Well, I think that's a, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, power is good for politicians, obviously, but it's a difficult one. Now, I th- for example... Dr. Riley, you came under a lot of pressure in relation to IPI, I think, wasn't it? And I think it was quite a concern, this cancer drug, quite a concerted campaign. And of course, if if there are several hundred or several thousand people affected by a particular decision, there's going to be two or three in every constituency with their families and so on. But I think as a result, if I'm not mistaken, and, and, and the other side of the table will probably confirm this, I think as a result of that getting approval, that then raises the bar for future approvals because what Michael's team are doing are measuring the relative benefit of a particular new drug compared to previous drugs. So if we give approval to, by whatever means, by whether it comes from the minister or through the normal process, if we give approval to a particular cancer drug, in this case I think it was IPI, that then raised the bar for, I think, Pembro, for example, another cancer drug. See, the problem with a lot of these drugs is the improvement in, say, in, in extra life expectancy is marginal. It's weeks or months. Yeah. Really. It's weeks or months. And there's no getting away from that. You can, you can sound harsh, but if you're terminally ill or very ill and this is going to make a difference of that small magnitude, is that fair on the rest of society? Is that fair on the rest of the health system? I know coming through my desk, I get so many requ- requests for coverage and deserving causes and that's only a fraction of what the minister must get. We could spend our health budget several times over easily. 
But it's somehow it's less sexy to say that we should provide more home care packages mm. or home care hours mm. for quiet, mm. dignified, el- not to say that other people are not dignified, elderly women and men living in their homes who we must ensure, for example, that they don't fall. If they fall, then their life starts going downhill very, very fast. Right. And that's a huge thing. So that kind of preventative stuff is not sexy, but it's really necessary. And now you've opened a can of worms there. Michael Barry, you know, some illnesses are less sexy than others. And it's not half as emotive, you know, to arrange for home care for the elderly or maybe obese people aren't as attractive, you know, for a TV story on drugs, you know, as a child with CF. Are we susceptible to funding more media friendly illnesses? Well, I think the first thing to say is that uh, for our assessment, it doesn't play a part. We assess everything on the data. And whether it's good data, poor data, whatever, and as Paul says, the many drugs, we have to be honest. The benefits are marginal and people don't like to hear that, but uh, that is the truth. But then you have some very, very exciting drugs that, for example, for hepatitis C, curing the condition in up to 90% of people and more now. That's exciting. But the assessment process doesn't change. The reimbursement process as you say, may well be influenced by, depending on on the illness that you, that you have. And I suppose that's human nature. I mean, uh, you know, if it involves children, if it involves cancer, then, you know, it's seen as a priority. But I would remind people a very common condition, uh, heart failure, mm-hmm. has a prognosis worse than most cancers. And yet you very rarely hear about it. So I think that is an issue, all right. Yeah, yeah I remember Morris Nelligan saying that you'd think there was only one cancer in Ireland, breast cancer. Whereas you can get cancer of anything, but it doesn't get the. I was just going to yeah, say, could, Gina. I give you an example, just following up what Michael said. There's yeah. a little exercise I do sometimes with students. I say, you have twenty thousand euro, it could be a hundred thousand, and I give them four scenarios. You know, one is a recovering drug addict. Woman is an older patient who needs a hip replacement. One is a, a young man who's massive face burns and he's only eighteen. Oh yeah. And the fourth one is a a, ch- a ten year old child who's dying of cancer who might have a 50-50 chance if they got this new drug at a huge expense. So I'd throw that out and say, you know, argue one side or the other. And it was a little exercise done in, in, a, in a, I think, in a town, in a county in, in England. And they almost all come to the position of they give the money to the child, which I think just really highlights, you know, the emotional. How could you deny a 10-year-old child who's going to die if there's a possibility? The woman with the hip, well, sure, she's had a decent life. She's 60-something. The young man, he may get over it. The drug addict, well, she inflicted it on herself. I'm just giving you some of the... I don't agree with them necessarily, but that's the point. I think, you know, to use maybe a theoretical framework, which I think we've all touched on, is in philosophy, there's this notion of utilitarianism. Now, mm. It's a big word, but I mean, all it means is, you know, the most benefit for the most people, putting it in its simplest form. And I think, regrettably, that's what it comes down to. But I think, you know trying to deal with the challenge of the emotional onslaught sometimes is extremely difficult. And that, James Riley, is what the politicians are vulnerable to because you can't make hard decisions. So, Paul, you were talking about that one, Pembro, a a cancer drug, you know, that maybe the results, Mm. you know, are marginal enough. Does that mean politicians just shouldn't have a place in this decision-making process when you can't be strong enough and harsh enough to say no? No, I think they absolutely should. I mean, one of the things that I harped on about a lot when I was in opposition was the fact that I would take responsibility, and I did. And boy, did I take responsibility. (laughs) 
But having said that, um, no, I mean, I think it's very important that at the end of the day, there is there is somebody to, with whom the book stops. It's far too, it would be wonderful for politicians if all these sort of decisions could be taken away and nothing to do with me. Mm. I'm, I'm only here to do X, Y and Z. I'm just a commentator. I only make policy now, the impacts of it really, you know. But can I come back to some of the policy because I think it's really important. Yeah. And it's stuff I've raised myself and I've been critical of politicians and myself as a politician, with fellow politicians, both in Europe and here in Ireland. And it's this. It is always much more politically attractive to open a new hospital, a new MRI scanner, or have a new procedure for cardiac bypass, stenting, whatever, done, than it is to bring in a really important public health policy that will save many, many more lives over many, many more years than any of these things will. So you even take the issue of heart disease. How much money should we be spending on putting stents into people versus how much money we should be spending to keep people healthy so they never get to the point where they need a stent? And that was what Heartwatch was about way back when. And that's why we do need a new GP contract that will focus on prevention and keeping people well as opposed to disease. And I did say when I was Minister for Health, I thought it was a misnomer because I feel like I'm Minister for Disease because that's all we ever talk about is diseases instead of... What about keeping people well so they can live long? There was a study done in Trinity that showed that the, the last 10 days of your life are the most expensive on the state. Yes. And if you die in your 40s and 50s, it costs three times as much than if you die in your 70s right. or 80s. Right, so follow that through. Does that mean that when people get seriously ill and terminally ill, we should be prepared to pull the plug quicker? I think we should be more careful about and acknowledging of what death and life is about and that death is a natural part of life, it's the natural end and that we shouldn't be engaging in heroics when people are coming toward the end for the sake of a few extra days, a few extra weeks. I mean, I have seen people being resuscitated in their 90s and, you know, you talk to the family afterwards and what would we be known? We would have said, no, don't do that. And the patient, you know, left in a vegetative state. I mean... Cooey bono there, like, I mean, who's benefiting from that? Gina, we've talked about that before. Two two interesting things. A big study was done, I think, in in America, which tracked, I feel like, um, end-of-life issues. And one of the things was they tracked three um, medical soaps over the period of a year, like ER, Holby City, whatever, about resuscitation levels. I often ask students this. It's amazing, I suppose, and they're quite young. They haven't maybe investigated. And I, and I said to them, what was, do you think the result in terms of resuscitation? I could ask you, what was it, do you think? Oh, it seems to work all the time. Yeah, you 85 know. to 90% yeah. of soaps resuscitation. And it's, it's resuscitation just with the paddles. Yeah. Now, Clear. James, James would stand back. James would know that resuscitation, it starts with the paddles. It goes much further. You can end up breaking ribs. I mean, it's, it is horrendous if you actually see the reality of it. And in real life, what's the resuscitation level in, even if you have your arrest in hospitals? I don't it's know. Very low. Very low, like very six low. to ten percent. No way. So the public yeah. out there actually believe I'm for resuscitations. Again, sort of it's an issue, you know, of education. And the other study that I find was fascinating was there was I think a cork surgeon recently who actually produced a book, How Doctors Die. I'm not sure if that was the title of the book, but it was fascinating that doctors have a completely different approach to death than the general public. Because doctors know, as James has said, 
what may be involved and they know when to say let's stop and let's nature take its course. So Paul Cullen, whether or not it's the doctor in the hospital with the family pleading, keep going, keep going, or whether it's them ringing up the radio programmes and saying James Riley is killing me because he won't pay for this drug. Where do you lie on when we should say no and when we should say enough? Well, speaking as a parent, I probably have a bad rep at home already on the no question. I throw it out uh, morning, noon and night. Um, You know, we we probably broadened the discussion quite a bit and uh, we've talked about drugs. You could talk about hip replacements. You could talk about all sorts of procedures. You could talk about defibrillators put all around the country to limited use, to be honest with you, at great expense. and, And they have to be maintained regularly and they're not being maintained. So having covered this area for the last three or four years, I think we've got to turn around and talk about it a different way. When we were all talking about now primary care and how we've got to get people out of hospital and treat them at home and so on, in our heads also we have to talk, and James touched on it, we have to start talking about people being well as a normal situation and maintaining that wellness and then as an abnormal situation going to hospital or getting emergency treatment and that's what hospitals should be for those specific things, you know, because we seem to just run to the emergency department. We seem to demand the drug. And let's face it, that's including GPs. And uh, yeah. we dish them out uh, like like nobody does. We dish out antibiotics far more than in other European countries. So no has to form a, a central part. Of and our, and of just our on policy. that and knowing how vulnerable the medical profession themselves sorry, are to no. patient pressure. Do you think the politicians should be involved in those decisions? I actually do, because I think as we define ourselves currently as a democracy, I think we are a modern uh, liberal (laughs) social democracy inflected with a specifically Irish human touch. And I think that part of that is saying that there is a recognisable, attackable human being, a minister, a politician who has the final say in as few circumstances as possible there rather than, and Michael has been out on the radio and everything like that, but he's not as well known as James Riley and he's not elected. Not yet, but uh, I think so on balance, yes, in limited circumstances. Okay, I think that's an appropriate final word. Paul Cullen, Michael Barry, James Riley and Gina Menzies were my guests today. Aidan McKelvey researched, Stephen Jordan produced and thank you for listening.